Well, last Sunday morning I read uh, all of Psalm, of, rather of Exodus chapter 13, verse 17 through the end of 14. I won't do that tonight in the interest of time, but I'd like to read a collage of five brief passages that index and refer to this great miraculous event at the Red Sea. Psalm 105, verses 37 to 39. Then he brought out Israel with silver and gold, and there was none among his tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen upon it. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light by night. And then Psalm 78, verses 12 through 14. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt in the fields of Zoan. And there he's referring to the ten plagues. He divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the water stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light. And then from Psalm 136 where 26 times there is the refrain for his steadfast love endures forever. Beginning in verse 10, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt for his steadfast love endures forever and brought Israel out from among them for his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong arm and an outstretched, a strong hand and an outstretched arm for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever, and made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. And then in Acts 7, right before the just a smattering of stones is going to send Stephen to his death. He's preaching, he speaks of this Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in a bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. And then finally, from Hebrews 11 in verse 29, speaking of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. I'd like to illustrate this and grab your attention for a moment. The old man made his daily walk as he did every day after he saw the, post, the postal service truck go by. He made his daily walk across that country road to the other side of the road in front of his house to pick up the mail at his mailbox. Today was no different, he thought, just another day of getting the mail, of course, mostly junk mail. 
And then the huge dark sedan bore down on him. He went this way and that, that way and this, but it appeared he couldn't avoid getting hit by that speeding car no matter which direction he went. And then all of a sudden, it screeched to a halt right in front of him. You can imagine the screeching sound and the smoke coming up from the tires. And it stopped just inches from hitting him. He slowly shuffled his way around to the driver's side of the car with dark tinted windows. And then the automatic window slowly lowered. And there was a little squirrel on the seat. Its hands gripped on the steering wheel. And it winked at him and said, it's not as easy as it looks. Not as easy as it looks. And Israel would be there in those first days outside of Egypt. It wasn't enough simply to have a change of a zip code. Yes, they were out from under Pharaoh's thumb after that miraculous series of strokes or plagues. But this would be no walk in the park. It would not be as easy as it looked. No simple checkout and we are on our way. Like checking out of a hotel and never giving a thought to what was behind you or what's going to be in front of you. Israel would continue to need his divine aid. They would need Yahweh's help. They would need his kessid, his steadfast love, when they cried for rescue. And so like last week, in the continuation of this message from Exodus 13, 17 to the end of 14, is our big idea. And this is how we paired it. Their rescue from Egypt is his kessid. It's his steadfast love and loyalty, his covenant loyalty to his covenant people by whom he has now revealed himself as the covenant-keeping God, as Yahweh, the one who says, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. And their rescue through the sea is his kessid, his steadfast love. So that we may say today our rescue from sin is his kessid in Christ. And of course, we need to be clear about what this word kessid means. This word that's typically tra- translated as Yahweh's unfailing covenant love, his steadfast covenant loyalty to his people, and it's inexhaustibly rich in heavenly meaning. And kids, one of the things that you may hope for from your mom and dad and moms and dads, one of the things we model for our children is to show, give a picture to our children of that undying, of that unfailing, if at times faltering and stumbling, covenant love in marriage that then gives them something by which they can understand the kessid that covenant love of God in Christ Jesus. Now, I want to briefly review, just briefly, those last six verses from last week. We saw that God leads his people out. The basic outline for this whole message, including last week, was he leads his people out, and that's the end of chapter 13. Then the first 20 verses of chapter 14 is 
preparation for the Red Sea crossing, and then finally, what we call the actual crossing of the Red Sea in chapter 14, verses 21 to the end of the chapter. And a quick review, I want to give just four points from last week to see how God leads his people out. And that is first that God's leading is not always the way we would have done it. God's leading is not always the way we would have done it. It's easy to think sometimes, God, didn't our calendar sink? And we think in terms of efficiency. We think by the way of the Philistines, like that would have been really logical. But God is thinking in terms of his glory, his renown, and in a way that defies logic. He's intertwining our good with his glory such that it was an Asian theologian in commenting on that scene in the prison in Philippi with Paul and Silas. He said this, when the men were in chains, he said, we think in terms of apostolic journeys, but sometimes God dares to put his greatest servants in chains. And we know that there in Philippi, with the apostles singing, and the earthquake, the earthquake rumbling, it would be easy to think, why can't these apostles be on their way? But God is leading in ways that are not always consistent in the way that we would have done it. Well, secondly, we see that God is more keenly aware of our tendencies than we are. He knows our frame that we are but dust. That's what the psalmist says in Psalm 103. You might ask, did Moses hear the Lord think out loud to himself when he said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt? And that is the basis for why he didn't send them the efficient way straight east out of Ramses toward the land of the Philistines. And it's instructive here about the Lord's timing in our lives. He knows are framed that we are but dust. Like the Lord Jesus said to the disciples in John 14, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. That's why David said in Psalm 19, we referenced this last week, Lord, acquit me of hidden faults. Lord, acquit me of hidden faults. I was telling our Sunday school this morning. This past week, I was reflecting on the last year and just thinking about how my tongue at times that I've spoken poorly, I've spoken rashly, I've been harsh and not gentle. And I was thinking about those that I've had to make amends with and recognize that I see that a little as hindsight 2020. I'm looking back over the last year, kind of a, a year in review, and then realizing I understand David now saying, equip me of hidden faults. But there's real comfort here because we're reminded that God is more keenly aware of our tendencies than we are. But thirdly, we see that God's leading is by his appointed means. It's a pillar of cloud by day, and it's a pillar of fire by night. And all these Psalms, as we've read, Psalm 78, Psalm 105, Psalm 136, they all confirm and they memorialize this in Israel's story. Now, I don't want you to miss this too for a moment. Look at Exodus chapter 13. It's very easy to think 
to say, well, the Lord, that Israel was led by a pillar of, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. But look carefully at what it says in chapter 13 and verse 21. There's not simply a pillar of cloud. There's not simply a pillar of fire. It's that the Lord is going before them, it says, in a pillar of cloud. It's as though Moses is placing, is not distinguishing except that Yahweh is there in the pillar of cloud. Now, we don't know exactly what that looks like, but God is leading, and he will lead his people by his appointed means. And I say, kids, just for a moment, if you ask, well, what am I to do? How am I to live? In a world that wants to make our feelings and our experience the authority, like that's what's in bold letters, think of God's word as your authority. When you think about how do you, how do you want God, how, how should you expect God to lead you? You should expect God to lead you by his word. What does the psalmist say in Psalm 119? Your word is a what? A lamp to my feet and a light to my path. There's a fourth thing I want to see from last week, and that is that the rattle of Joseph's bones provided a poignant reminder to Israel. Israel, Egypt was not their appointed inheritance. Canaan was. And when they knocked the dust off of Joseph's bones and they gathered them up to transport them out of Egypt, I was imagining, you know these little wagons kids have painted red and you pull them around the cul-de-sac or whatever? I was imagining like this, like, hey, can I pull Papa's bones? You know, he's got the little wagon and the bones are in the back there and they're kind of rattling like some just macabre scene. They're like, what's in that cart? Uh, you, you really want to know, Joseph's bones. And they're rattling around, okay. And when they, when they, they were gathering them up and transporting out of Egypt, they were accomplishing two things. First, on the lowest level, they were fulfilling their forefather's promise to Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis. To not leave his remains in that hostile and alien land. But second, this act of pulling Joseph's bones out of Egypt, even to be carried around for 40 years in the wilderness, it highlighted something far more significant in that way, and that was this. Yahweh had a much better land promise to the descendants of Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And that was the promised land of Canaan. It was flowing with milk and honey. And as sure as our future is as bright as all the promises of God, Yahweh would lead them there. And there is a sense in which the rattling of those bones could have been seen, you could describe them as sweet music, the best percussion of all to the children of Israel, that those bones were on the way to the promised land and they didn't belong in Egypt. Well, now that the Lord had brought his people out, they face an obstacle like none they'd ever seen. And some of you know what that's like when you think, when, when you're facing something, you're thinking, what in the world am I going to do? 
And there was the Red Sea, the Sea of Reeds. And we're not talking, we're not talking about marsh here, as some would characterize it. We're not talking about you trying to ford a stream that's eight or nine feet wide, and you think if you run from about 30 yards away with your very best leap that you can make it to the other side. We're talking eight, maybe 10 miles, something like this, a real breadth of water. Like settlers who came up to the rim of the Grand Canyon, and they thought, how in the world are we ever going to get around that thing? How are we going to get from here to there? And the nation of Israel found themselves in a similar predicament. They knew that it wouldn't be as easy as it looked. I want us to consider these first 20 verses briefly. Their preparation for the Red Sea crossing. I don't know about you, but, but I've wondered, why did God put Israel in the wilderness? Why did he add that extra step? Why couldn't they have just gone right out of Egypt and he'd take them straight to the promised land, you know? It would have saved a lot of text in the Bible, like all this from Exodus all the way through Joshua, okay? Saved a lot of pages, a lot of paper and ink. But he knew what he was doing. He was forming a people a treasured possession for himself well how about pharaoh how do you think pharaoh interpreted israel's wandering in the wilderness let me give you one answer poorly he interpreted israel's wandering poorly because he didn't know what god was doing on one level he at the most simple level level he thought they don't know what they're doing they are lost or they are confused. And like a shark that sensed blood in the water, he sensed an opportunity for his nation. I think he was having sellers regret at this point. Well, what was going on with Pharaoh's heart? There was this hardening, there was this regret, this loss here of a national program of enslaved production. That realization of What have we done? What have we done? He asks in verse 5, what is this that we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? That moment where you're thinking, I've made a huge mistake, all right? Now, let me just take us through this this section, verses 1 through 20. I want you to see Yahweh's redirection of Israel, this turning, instead of going straight east to to the area of the Philistines, to the people of the Philistines, this redirection, like on your GPS, recalculating, recalculating, is actually an omniscient, divine redirecting of the purpose of Pharaoh's heart, all right? The redirection of Israel is actually paired with this redirection of the purpose of Pharaoh's heart. But God's purpose is greater and more glorious. His goal, which would never be fine for you and me to confess, is the securing of his own glory. In other words, if we said to you, what are you up to this week? And you said, my goal this week is to get as much glory for myself as I can possibly get. We would look at you like, have you lost your mind? But God can say this with no apology. 
His goal is the securing of his own glory and the unique revelation of himself, even if it's not for salvation, but in judgment. He says, I will get glory, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. There is something about the character of God that we ought not to miss, and that, that is that God desires to reveal himself to people, to people whom he has made. But sometimes it looks awful, and I mean awful in the sense that it looks like judgment. And I want you to not miss for a moment, too, this word comes, right? This word comes from the Lord to Moses, and Moses is a mediator deliverer is to give this word to the people that they're to turn, all right, to turn back and go in front of Pihahirath between Migdal and the sea, and they're to camp, they're to create this encampment right in front of Baal-Ziphon. And look what it says. It's this little short sentence suffix, and they did so. The people obeyed. They followed this word of Moses that the Lord had given them. I want you to see as we look at the next section that when you see Pharaoh changing his mind, you must see God at work mysteriously. You must see God at work secretly, working to influence the mind and the will of Pharaoh in a way that does not violate Pharaoh's will, what you would call his free will. And just as a moment, I want to pause there. When we speak of free will, a dog has the freedom of will to meow like a cat. And a cat has the freedom of will to bark like a what? A dog. But dogs don't meow and cats don't bark. Everything acts consistent with its nature, okay? Pharaoh, even as God is hardening his heart, like looking at two sides of one coin, is simply hardening the heart of a man who's hell-bent on resisting this word from Yahweh to let his people go, and he wants what he wants. As Cornelius Plantagus says in his book on a breviary of sin about not the way things ought to be, he says this about the human heart. And kids, this is what you want to know about yourself. You don't even need, as you think about you for a moment, there's no amount, no, there's, there's nothing that, that could be done at a hospital that could reveal this about your heart in the way that the Bible does. Jeremiah says that your heart and my heart is deceitful above all things, and who knows its desperate wickedness. So Cornelius Plantagus says, the heart wants what it wants. That's our mindset. And until your heart wants what God wants, your heart will want what you want. Because you want what you want reflects the person who you are. What I want reflects the person who I am. Pharaoh, though God is hardening his heart, 
is still a free moral agent, and Pharaoh then is still responsible for his actions. But God is directing him as easily as a potter is taking a piece of clay and shaping it for his own purposes. And I want you to imagine if we had little cans of Play-Doh right here, and we had all the colors around, that we had five or six of those cans that within a matter of seconds, we could call a few of you up and you could shape that Play-Doh into whatever shape you could in the time allotted. And Yahweh does that with Pharaoh's heart. He's a pawn in the sovereign's hand. He's a pawn as Yahweh is taking his heart and shaping it for his own purpose. And so God hardens Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh pursued the congregation of Israel with all that he had, with all his resources. You see, Pharaoh thought from his perspective that he was reclaiming his workforce. But God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Because though Pharaoh thought, this is what I'm doing, he's a pawn in Yahweh's hand. Yahweh was preparing to get glory for himself. He was getting ready to deliver this miraculous, all-powerful, but fatal lesson to the Egyptians. There's something else I want us to see in this passage, and that is that God's antidote to our temptation to return to sin is the same as he gave to the Israelites when they, when they longed to return to Egypt. Let me read that again. God's antidote, God's medicine for us when we experience temptation to return to the sin that we once enjoyed, and kids, forgive me for this, for this graphic picture, to go eat the vomit that you've already vomited up, to eat it again. God's antidote for that is the same as he gave to the Israelites. You see, your sin, my sin, gives this mirage like water in a desert that's not really there. In the little book, Precious Remedies for Satan's Devices, the Puritan who wrote it described that what Satan does is he presents the bait, but he hides the hook in the bait. All you see is the bait, and you see how desirable sin never presents its liabilities. It always presents its assets, okay? But here's Moses' divine word to the people. Here it is, fear not. Here's the antidote to temptation. To the temptation to think that Egypt is so much better, we'd be so much happier, so much safer, so much more safe, if we could just be back in Egypt. Here it is, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. Now, three times, Moses uses this word see. Now hold your finger there and look then. Look at the end of chapter 14, verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord 
And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And for the first time in history, God creates for us to never forget that the Exodus is the pattern of redemption and he creates a sea saw for us. Okay, that's how you can remember it. C, C, C. Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. And that is juxtaposed against these words in verse 30 and 31, Israel saw. What they see? They saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. What did they see? They saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. But be warned. Not fearing Standing firm and seeing God work are not the same thing as a passive faith. True faith is active. Biblical faith is on the move. You with faith are like a car. You cannot steer. It's difficult, right? You can't steer a car fundamentally that's not moving. And so do not equate trust with inactivity and passivity. But let me say this for some of us who are Marthas, who are always on the move and we're doing so much. Do not, conversely, do not equate activity with biblical faith and trust. And listen to the Lord here. He says, he says to Moses, representatively, I thought this is interesting. Why do you cry to me? And maybe at this point, Moses had had a conversation with the Lord. He had, he, had, he had lifted up his voice to the Lord. He said, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. And they do, okay? And so that movement is not in contradiction to this word to stand firm. Your faith, living faith, a living biblical faith is active. If your mantra is just be still and know that I am God, that's legitimate to see God at work and to trust him. But God normally acts and provides through normal means. So the people of Israel to go forward. But Moses as God's man and Israel's deliverer, deliverer also had a role. Look what God says to him, verses 15 to 18. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And this is, there's more here than an impersonal miracle. You know, I always think it's cool to like go into an elevator and hit the fourth floor. Like you hit that thing. And you can have 2,000 pounds in that elevator. And it feels like a miracle. You know that there's really, there's mechanics and electricity. But it's very impersonal. There's no one that's, like when you hit that button, there's not an army of men down on the, like in a, in a pit. They're, oh, hey, they want to go to the fourth one and they all start doing this. It's impersonal. It's mechanics and electricity. It's God. It's God that's protecting his people. 
It's the Lord that went before them in a pillar of cloud and led the people. Don't think that the leading of Israel by the pillar of cloud and and the, the, the pillar of fire by night, don't think that that can be reduced to thinking in terms of atoms and oxygen and hydrogen and this distinction between what clear blue sky looks like and what a cloud is. It's the Lord that's there and the Lord, chapter 13, verse 21, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. It's the Lord that went before them. And I believe this angel of the Lord that we read there The angel of God there in verse 19. The one that now moved from being in front of them to behind them in a posture of protection and against Pharaoh and his hosts. I believe this is a Christophany. I believe this angel of God in 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 verse 19 is a pre-incarnate appearing of the Son of God who is protecting the rear flank of God's people as they and even Moses was unaware of how Yahweh would rescue his covenant people from the hand of Pharaoh. Yes, yes, they had this word, all right? They knew, they knew that God was going to help them. The Lord had said to this in the earlier part of the chapter, that he would get glory over Pharaoh and that the Egyptians would know that he was the Lord. But until this section between verses 15 and 17, they didn't know what that rescue would look like. It's not like you and I. We know this story and we return to it. They didn't know it. But there's the angel of God, what I believe is a Christophany, and the Son of God is protecting God's people, standing between them as they face the Red Sea and the encroaching people and hosts of Egypt. I want to look now briefly at this crossing of the Red Sea. I want us to marvel at the simplicity of these 11 verses, just very briefly. Moses gives us a picture of of life in the gospel here in his response when it says he stretched out his hand. When you see, verse 21, that he stretched out his hand over the sea, you may think that all you're seeing is a physical act, but what you're seeing is a pattern of gospel response to the word of the Lord, and that is he trusts and obeys just like the song. And like I was saying, up until verses 15 to 17, there's no record that Moses or the people of Israel knew which Yahweh had in mind. Yes, Moses had received the message that the Lord would harden Pharaoh's heart. He'd received the message that God would get glory over Pharaoh and his hosts and that he would act in such a way that the Egyptians would get this accelerated, probably like 10-hour or 10-day masters, an accelerated masters at the speed of sound about the knowledge of the Holy One of Israel. But Moses gives this picture. He trusts and obey. Could you imagine if Moses, I mean, you could defend him if he said, now God, you really think this is going to work? So like just grab the stick and just extend it out and go like this. 
And so you mean all those waters of the Red Sea? Like, Lord, you're really going to do this? But Lord, like, even if you, like, you know how this works, God, with gravity and all that, and the slope, the angle of the way water, like, basic hydrology, Lord, uh, like, uh, hydromechanics. I don't think it's going to work. And Lord, even if we get, even if you get that water pushed up against the sides, like, it's going to be really, really hard to keep that up. And I don't think, I don't think with, our, with all the animals and 2 million of us, you know, like 1.4 million women and children and 600,000 men, like if, if we don't have really good drying conditions, it's just not going to work. I don't, think the, I don't think the bottom of the ocean is going to dry in time. You don't hear that. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. That's what he did. But look at the next phrase in verse 21. And the Lord, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. You think about the things that burden you. You think about those whom you're praying for that they might know the Lord. You're thinking about a situation where you need, with another brother or sister, maybe you need the resolution of conflict. You obey God in his word. That's like Moses stretching out his hand. And let God, by the same power which he drove back the waters of the Red Sea, by the same power by which he raised his son from the dead, you trust him to do his part. And he did for the people of Israel. And you see their response. They tried to follow them. They thought it was that simple. I could see the Egyptians saying, well, isn't this convenient that these waters are parted? Well, God, that really helps us in our mission. But it doesn't work. And you see the end of verse 25. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. How amazing that the enemies of God, the Egyptians' confession is the same thing that Moses had said to the people at the end of verse 14, the Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent or only to be quiet. And so the enemies of God will suddenly, brothers and sisters, even as we're seeing as Pastor Jamie's taking us through the book of Revelation, the enemies of God will suddenly, like an epiphany, understand that they are undermanned against the people of God, but moreover against the God of the people of Israel. And so they say this, let us flee. But it's too late. As God would fight for his people, so the great shepherd king will fight for you. He'll fight for his elect. He'll fight for his sheep who will never, ever be snatched from his secure hand. We live in a world where we're always trying to protect against threats. I think about the text you get on your phone for real estate things that sometimes you wonder, what is this? Or you get spam emails, and you're thinking about protection with, with, uh, on, on your email, just all types of things. The way we exert ourselves to provide, to protect ourselves from legitimate threat. But God says, I have you. 
His arms were lifted up upon that cruel cross high above the earth on our behalf. And they're now raised, brothers and sisters, they're now raised in continual intercession for you as he fights for you in prayer. But his hands are unflinching. His grasp is firm and sure. You and you and you. You cannot be lost if you are found in him. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Beat a path as fast as you can to be found safe in the Son of God.